You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, conversations with the icons of our time. Sports announcers invariably, they're so-and-so's lovely wife in the stands. It's always lovely wife. I use that sarcastically to talk about the stereotype that's attributed to coaches and athletes' wives. Notre Dame's Teresa Godwin-Phelps. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Teresa Godwin-Phelps was a noted and respected law professor for many decades at Notre Dame and then at American University. But to the public at large, she may have been best known as the wife of legendary Notre Dame basketball coach Digger Phelps. She called her 1994 memoir The Coach's Wife. It was a rumination on the joys and frustrations of being in the shadow of such a large public figure and trying to navigate the often murky waters of college athletics. Now, it was 50 years ago today, January 19, 1974, the Digger Phelps Notre Dame team recorded perhaps its greatest victory. That day, 50 years ago today, the Fighting Irish beat UCLA, led by John Wooden, ending UCLA's 88-game winning streak. So here now, from 1994, Teresa Godwin-Phelps. I felt that I had a unique perspective, that no coach's wife um, had really written about college sports from a woman's point of view. And I had an, another perspective in that I'm a faculty member at the school where my husband coached. So I saw sports from both sides of the street, um, from the academic side and from the purely athletic side. So all of those things made me decide to, to write this book. You more than just a lovely wife. I think so, yes. A lovely wife, as you know, is uh, that phrase that you hear all the time that um, sports announcers invariably use. They're so-and-so's lovely wife in the stands. It's always lovely wife. It's one word, lovely wife. I use it a bit sarcastically in the book to talk about the stereotype that's attributed to uh, coaches and athletes' wives. Uh, they're a t of a type. And the book is very much my story, a woman's story that could apply to lots of wives and lots of women in the contemporary world who struggle to carve out their own identities in a world that imposes definitions upon them, a world that tells you what you're supposed to be like. You're supposed to be like a coach's wife, and therefore you're not supposed to do other kinds of things like go to graduate school or be on the faculty. And uh, so it's it's a, a story, a, a, something of a coming-of-age story, and of learning how, how to find out who I wanted to be in a world that was telling me, giving me powerful messages of how I was supposed to be. I also gather your role is supposed to be, you may have an opinion about the team as long as your opinion is, well, I think we're going to go 84-0 and 0 this year, but your opinion may not include taking the clipboard and saying, now, uh, when on this play over here. <laughs> exactly. You're supposed to have very superficial opinions about sports. And, uh, and at as anyone who reads a book can see, I don't have a lot of opinions as to strategies and X and O's, but I do have um, opinions that I think are worth considering about what's happening in college sports, how academics are taking the backseat to to money-making and entertaining. Um, and, and if that's what college sports are about, I'm not sure that it's um, an academic enterprise at all. Still, when you have a 100% graduation rate, among your among the athletes that your husband coaches, that's that is quite an accomplishment. It is quite an accomplishment, and one that um, we are very proud of. Uh, one that 
probably isn't precedented. The national rate, graduation rate, is about 33%. And that's uh, a grim statistic in that we, we, we sell these kids a bill of goods. Many of them come from families with little experience of higher education. And we go, coaches go into their homes and, and they make them feel privileged to have their sons come and make money for us for a couple of years. And, uh, I'm not sure that we're doing all of the right things. I'm not sure that they're all good fits academically, um, for the players. Um, I'm not sure that their, um, academic careers are, are seriously considered. Freshman eligibility, for example, is my pet peeve. I don't know anyone who thinks that freshman eligibility is a good idea academically. Yet, if you get into a discussion with someone about it, they say, well, we have to do it to make money. And we have to, it's too, it's not financially prudent to um, allow these kids to come and not play for their freshman year. Now that, I don't think that should be allowed to enter into the argument. I think if it is not academically a good idea, then we don't do it. We're not a farm club um, for the NBA. At least we're not supposed to be. But now a coach or an athletic director can only do so much if the president of the school has a different idea about what should be going on. And, and in, in, in your case, when you got somebody like Father Hesburgh running things, things are going to be done on a little bit higher plane than at other schools, aren't they? I think so. And it certainly felt that way while, while we were there and while Father Hesburgh was president. I think the college presidents need to pay attention to what's going on and, uh, and need to be sure that this, the people they recruit, the players recruited are people who belong at the school and that they're there primarily for an education. I don't think that's so now. I think that's mythology um, at most places, that these are college guys playing for good old you. Um, actually, I think what's going on, these are, are, are players who are only at school because we make them go to school before they're allowed to make any money. They stay for a couple of years, and if they can make money playing ball, they get out as soon as they can, and that's without degrees. Um, almost every, every super player leaves before graduation now. But how do you tell a kid who has been, who's gotten the message on the street all his life, the way to the good life is by way of the NBA. And if it takes you a couple of years in college to get to the NBA, okay, fine, I can live with that. Well, I think we need to, of course, go way back and stop that message in the inner cities that um, that your worth only comes through uh, your ability to play basketball. The percentage of all of those 12-year-olds you see shooting hoops in the inner city um, who are going to make it to the NBA is so small um, probably more of them will be surgeons <laughs> or could be surgeons than could possibly play in the NBA. And yet that is the message that they have. I go into that in some detail in the book because what happened in our final year was Monty Williams, um, who is actually playing for Notre Dame now, was diagnosed with a, um, a heart disease similar to the one that killed Hank Gathers. And, uh, at that time, we believed that he would never play basketball again. And I talk about conversations that I had with him and how I would try to be optimistic and talk about the upside of him getting a good education, but but that I, I knew that I was arguing in face of a powerful message that told Monty that he was valuable because he could play basketball very well. Um, of course, that turned around for him, and he got another diagnosis that is now allowing him to play. Uh, and I think that uh, he wanted to he wanted to play so desperately, and it may still be a little bit dangerous for him to play. But how do you tell him not to? But at least now he's got another dimension to his life as well. 
I'd like to think so. At least he has stayed at Notre Dame, and he will leave with a degree, as far as I know. And that's good. Now, these are not all degrees in basket weaving, either, that we're talking about. No. Notre Dame really doesn't have a, a program in which we can hide athletes. We don't have a phys ed major or, or things like that. Um, the athletes do take the same courses that other students do. However, I, I, I don't think they get the same kind of education. The season has gotten so long, the pressure's so intense, that really most of their time and energy is spent on the sport. Basketball goes from October 15th to April 4th this year. That's a, that doesn't leave you much time for much else. It would almost be a better idea to have farm teams and minor leagues instead of college sports then, wouldn't it? I think in 10 years we're going to see a split. And I think we're going to see schools that want to field the college teams playing by the rules and not doing a whole lot of recruiting and not bending emission standards a great deal in a league of their own. And then I think we, we're going to see the, maybe a semi-professional model in the, in the, maybe in the colleges and universities, um, something like a farm system. What I think would be better is just what you say. Why not like baseball? The kids who want to go to college and play college ball can. Those who don't want to or are good enough to be drafted at 18 into a minor league system not run by the colleges and universities for the NBA and the NFL should be able to do that. If A lot of these kids really – be, I'm, a, I'm an educator, but I have to say a lot of them need money for themselves and their families a lot more than they need Philosophy 101 at 18. And maybe it would be better for them to be allowed to go and make some money and to defer their college education and to go back to school in their late 20s when they're finished playing ball. After this short break, Teresa Godwin Phelps on the College Athletics Money Machine. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 1994 conversation with Teresa Godwin Phelps. Well, not everyone belongs in college. I don't think so. And, uh, and a lot of people don't belong in college when they're 18. <laughs> and many don't belong in college if they're just there begrudgingly because they have to go in order to be able to play football and basketball. Maybe I'm just naive, but I would think that even if you had to go to college, to have to go to Notre Dame, for Pete's sake, I mean, I, I could think of a whole lot worse places right. to have to go. <laughs> right. It's, it's not a bad... I mean, oh, my life is ending. I have to take classes at one of the best schools in the country. Oh, no. You know, what torture that must be. Well, yes, but, but I think that may be from your point of view, too. Think about it. Basketball and football are the only sports in which a potentially money-making athlete can't make money at 18. I mean, if you play tennis, golf, ice skating, I mean, did Nancy Kerrigan go to college? Does anyone care if she went to college? Alex Agassi, <laughs> did he go to college? I mean, I don't know. I don't care. No one seems to care about those things with all other sports except football and basketball. Why in those sports do we, do we make this fetish first you go to college? I'm afraid I'm getting cynical enough to suspect it's because they make money for us if they go to college first. Can you say that on campus? I can say it, but uh, it's not uh, people don't want to think about that. 
It's not very in fact, correct I, these days. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I read a, a law review article that talked about sports as a civil rights matter and suggested that um, there was something um, very suspicious about the fact that these two particular sports really didn't allow people, stopped, prevented people from making any money um, um, while they were playing their sports. Um, for a couple of years. And I, I had never thought about it in those terms before. But once I started to think about it that way, I began to think, this is very strange. Well, let me, let me take it down to maybe a little bit more practical, uh, nuts and bolts, day-to-day level. When your husband comes home and he's had a really good practice day, the mood is really good. If you just come off a loss to North Carolina, the big game, national television, and everybody's watching, and they lose by 12 points, he comes home, I don't imagine his mood is quite as good. Oh, exactly. Although I felt uh, pregame pressure was a lot worse for him and for me and for our family than postgame. At least postgame, it was over. But before a game, that's the thing that I, I realize now. I can wake up mornings in December, January, February, and March without knots in my stomach. And then I spent 20 years, 21 years waking up three and four times a week with feeling a little sick because there was a game coming up. That has something to do with the intense pressure. You can't enjoy big wins because there's another game. And you can't afford to have um, a down week, a down season. Uh, remember rebuilding years? We used to, we used to allow teams to go, to have cycles, and sometimes they were really good, and sometimes they had a, a down year. That can't happen anymore. Every team has to be very good every year. I mean, $250,000 for first round of the NCAA. It's a lot of money. <laughs> but, you know, it struck me, there, there's a, there's a set of, not just the public's expectations of you, but you have to have, I mean, there's a certain kind of life that goes with being the wife of a coach, just as with being the wife of the CEO of IBM, the wife of the president of the United States. I mean, there are certain kind of roles that you are, that people expect you to fulfill, but also just a certain kind of lifestyle that you're going to have. Exactly. And uh, I think my book transcends sports and that it really speaks about that, um, about being uh, a woman in today's world and, and, and what that means. And particularly being someone's wife and, and what that means, and someone who has a high profile and, that, and what that means. I wonder how many men will actually really get it until the day their wife becomes more prominent in the public eye than they, and suddenly they're so-and-so's husband. Hmm. And I don't know. The coach's husband. Hmm. I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think I'll live long enough to see that day. <laughs> You're it, but <laughs> having your husband out of that, that bright, shining spotlight has made your life easier? Much easier. Mainly time. Um, we had Thanksgiving dinner without basketball players for the first time in 25 years. In 2019, Professor Phelps retired from Washington College of Law and is currently Professor Emerita. Now, you can get your copy of The Coach's Wife by Teresa Godwin Phelps by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, HeardEverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. HeardEverything.com is where you'll also find my 2002 interview with the legendary Bobby Knight. One time I threw a chair. I mean, I see that every other night on television. And how many coaches have thrown a coat, thrown a water bucket, thrown ice, you know, but that one thing gets repeated time and time again. Why? I honestly don't know. And my 2000 conversation with Mike Krzyzewski. 
I've had a great life because I've done what I've wanted to do, and I love doing it. And the longer I'm in it, the, the more I've loved it because uh, I've learned more about how to do my thing better. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, let's go back to the 2010 political campaign, the off-year elections. Do you remember who ran for U.S. Senate that year from the state of Delaware? The woman who had to go on television to explain to viewers why she was not a witch? My 2011 interview with Christine O'Donnell. There was just so much hoopla, to say it mildly, that um, people really didn't get to know who I am, and they just saw this mischaracterization painted by the media and by some of my own self-inflicted wounds, which are that stupid ad. (laughs) That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.